0: Okay. Well, we have a. Uh, some folks will trickle in for sure. A bit of a skeleton crew this morning. That's certainly okay. Uh, we are going to talk about something that's very important. It's not like I try to talk about things that aren't important to waste people's time, but there. But but certain things seem more important than others, and so. Uh, and so here we are. Let me let me pray for us, and then we will we'll dive in together. Lord Jesus, we're thankful to be. Back together during uh, this Sunday school hour after um, break, we're thankful uh, for this doctrine of union with Christ and how we can't really even truly wrap our minds around it, but we can see true glimpses of it and see how it works in certain ways, and so we pray that uh, you would help us ask the right questions today, that we would listen well, that we would... uh, Take things to heart and not just to our head. And so we ask that you would be with us over the next couple of minutes toward that end in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last time we were here, this is, it's been three weeks now. By the way, some people were wondering why we took a break. Um, we took a break because of me. It wasn't like we decided that New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve no one could learn anything. Uh, the, the break was really a concession for me to not have to to, uh, con- to to prepare Sunday school. So, thanks. I know y'all didn't have a role in that, but uh, thanks anyways. That's one one to explain the absence of Sunday school. Uh, what well, we've been talking about, union with the resurrected Christ. And last time we were together, we talked about the restoration of the glorious image. That is to say, the image of God. And how the image of God and the restoration project that is happening is really the theological foundation for what? Someone said it, quietly. Someone say it more loudly. The the restoration of the image of God is the... the KG, you made it. Sorry, I I heard you. Never mind. You're here. Awesome. Okay. Um, Restoration of the image of God is the theological foundation for what? sanctification. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are being renewed in knowledge of the Creator after the same image. And so there is an image of God that was lost, but not totally lost. I should say marred in the garden. And there is a process of getting that back so much that one day we will be like him. After all, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans chapter 8. And so that's where we concluded. And what I would like to turn to to start to close out this series over the next two or three weeks is, is a little bit more of the practical import of union with Christ. And I want to start today by looking at the union with Christ and what it implies for us corporately, but particularly as that imp- has to do with unity and diversity within the body of Christ. And so what I'm going to do first of all is just work through a couple of texts on the front end And then I'm going to just kind of give a running large application of those things. So it's going to be a little bit different than, going to feel a little bit different. But I want to have, and goodness gracious, I could have chosen many more texts to do this with. But I've chosen three that I I hope will serve the point. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three texts that talk about unity, and particularly in the body of Christ, but also mention diversity. And then I want to discuss and apply a variety of things that we see in those texts when we ask questions about a diverse church or a united church and what exactly that means, what exactly that doesn't mean. Okay, and that's a tall task for 45 minutes because there's a lot of really good questions there, but uh, we're going to try to do it. So turn with me first to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you will recall that Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And at verse 12 of chapter 12, he goes into a discussion which is really an extended analogy designed to show the multifaceted nature of the church with regards to giftedness. And so this is what he says. I'm going to talk through it. Okay, and we're really going to I'm going to go I'm going to go 12 through 20 for the sake of time and then 27 through 31. Okay, so he says, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ. All right. So very straightforwardly right up front. Everyone's got a body. It's the same body, but you have different parts. You have different members But it's still part of your body. The hand doesn't share the features of the stomach, but nevertheless, they all compose one singular thing despite the diversity present within it. Then he immediately switches over to the spiritual more explicitly. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. All right? So now we are all in one body in virtue of sharing in baptism. For sharing in the spirit, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit and therefore to be in one body. For the body, verse 14, does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Okay, so what he's saying is, you have parts of the body who say, well, I don't belong here, I'm not actually part of the body. The thing is, it's not really up to them. It is, regardless of what what that foot wants it to be, uh, or whether it wants to be something else. It is nevertheless a part of the body, a part of the diverse body. And if the ear should say, he goes on, because I am not an I, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body, essentially repeating the same thing, that just because a particular part of the body says, uh, I, I'm, I'm not a part, it uh, is actually irrelevant. They are, in fact, a part of the body, despite being diverse he goes on, if the whole body were an eye and he's going so he's going to shift here to talk about why this makes sense, why he's picked this as a metaphor. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense where would be the sense of hearing? Or the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So now he's shifting over and saying, let's assume that there wasn't diversity. Let's assume that there was not just unity, but uniformity or even identity between members of the body. And you had a bunch of eye, the whole body was an eye, or the whole body was an ear, well, then you would obviously be missing out on things that are absolutely critical for a body to function fully, normally, naturally. And so while there has to be, and there is objectively speaking, unity... Diversity and unity. Um, It's not just because that's the way; just it just is. It is that way, and there's nothing else to say about it. It's that way because it accomplishes something. It accomplishes something specific to bring a kind of health and functionality. But as it is, verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as He chose as he chose so they're not haphazardly put together they're arranged very particularly and then he ends this section with another question if all were a, if all were a single member where would the body be it would be a disappearing act right it would be a disappearing act you would see what he's saying is you would really cease to have a body Practically speaking, if everyone was an elbow, or everyone was an ear, or everyone was an eye, that, that wouldn't be recognizable as a body, is what he's saying. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Okay, unity, diversity, within the body of Christ Certainly with regards to gifts, but even if you back up to verse 13, talking about different kinds and classes of people, and we're going to see this again in just a second. Jews are Greeks. Slaves are free. Hey, they're all part of the body of Christ. And according to the preceding context, everyone has different gifts within the body of Christ. So let's continue to read in verse 27. We're going to skip 21 through 26 for now. Just because it's it's kind of a... Uh, it's a little bit of a, an aside. And it's an important aside, but not exactly for what we're talking about today. Now, you are, he says to the church at Corinth, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ and you as individuals make it up. In other words, the body of Christ, largely speaking, Not he's remember he's speaking to a local church, but he's not saying that They are the extent of the body of Christ. They individually make up the body of Christ. The body of Christ, of course, extending far beyond any one local church, which may, for example, only have Jews or Greeks. Okay? We're going to get to that in a little bit. The body of Christ might only have Greeks in it. Gentiles in it. Might only be free people in it. So what he's saying is that you make up this body of Christ that is, objectively speaking, diverse. And God has appointed in the church, and now we get some more, even more diversity. God has appointed in the church, first apostles, then prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues, going back to the gifts. Are all apostles? Rhetorical question. The answer is No. Are all prophets? The answer is no. Are all teachers? The answer is no. Do all work miracles? The answer is no. Do all possess gifts of healing? The answer is no. Do all speak with tongues? The answer is no. Do all interpret? The answer is no. All these rhetorical questions talking about all these are diverse things that not everybody can claim. Not everybody can claim these things. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Now I'm going to punt on verse 31 because that that would take us off the track here. Earnestly desire the higher gifts and precisely uh, what that means. Because the main point is not a final exhortation there. It is that there is one body with many members. There is an objective unity. There is an objective diversity as well, but they work together such that one does not compromise the other. And in fact, they are both necessary to one another to have a body and to have a body that is uh, that works, you might say, like God designed it to work and have individual individual members that work how the individual members were designed to work. OK, so that is Paul's. Oh, I did, we did walk through that briskly, but that is Paul's very well known and important discussion of one body with many members. OK, Turn with me second to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, still the Apostle Paul, of course. I'm going the wrong way. I don't know why. Okay. So. Another passage about the unit, about unity in the body of Christ. Paul says in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There is a way to walk worthy of the gospel and a way to walk unworthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of that which you have been called. With... What is that supposed to look like? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit Himself is not divided, and it is the Spirit that we read back in 1 Corinthians that we are baptized into. And so we are supposed to be eager to maintain this kind of unity And that unity produces peace. Seeking to maintain it sustains that peace. He says there is one body. One. And one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father. Do you see a pattern here? One, 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 unity. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So that's the that's the unity part. Now he's about to switch to the diversity part. One, 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 one. But, you get the contrast. But, grace was given to each one of us according to to the measure of Christ's gift. And so right now here, he's not talking about saving grace, because all of us have saving grace. He's talking about different kinds of grace. Therefore, it said, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Certainly here we have a reference to the death and resurrection and then ascension of Jesus. And remember, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, as it was pointed out to me, or I was, well, I don't know it was pointed out, but I was reminded just the other day, there's only 40 days of resurrection that isn't ascension resurrection. The ascension plays an incredibly central role. In Christian theology, it's not just a strange passage in Acts 1. Okay? Uh, resurrection talk in the New Testament is of the ascended resurrection Christ who is seated in the heavenly places, who is reigning, and not the 40 days on earth walking around having a beach barbecue and eating fish, resurrection Christ. Okay? So the ascended resurrected Christ here. Gave gifts to men. We read about some of those gifts. We read about some of those roles. And he's going to continue to talk about them. He gave the apostles. The prophets. The evangelists. The shepherds. The teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. So it's got a practical purpose here. The practical purpose is building up the body until we attain, all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is a maturity project. There is this diversity here, particularly with the leadership structure, as he's mentioned, on top of the gifts, until we all mature to the fullness of Christ. So that, and there's a reason we need to do that, he gives, so that we may no longer be children tossed and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. There is a desire, uh, there is a need, excuse me, to be instructed by folks who are wiser and more mature than you. Uh, this is just, everyone knows this who's, who has uh, little little kids. You know, they come home, especially when they're very young, like my kids, believing something ridiculous that someone told them at, at school. Okay, and I'm like, son, that's just silly. That's silly. Well, in fact, yesterday it was it was the uh, oh, I had a great opportunity, <laughs> the old uh, the old Bloody Mary thing in the bathroom. Y'all remember that from middle school? My son came home. Dad, if you stand in in front of a mirror in the bathroom and say Bloody Mary and spin around, Bloody Mary, apparently. Queen Mary, I, who killed all a bunch of... Pro, I, I'm not sure exactly which Mary it's supposed to be. And I said, you know what, son? We should go find out. <laughs> and so it's exactly what we did. We went into the bathroom. I said, I think, I sh- I think we should turn the lights off. <laughs> turn the lights off. And I said, all right, son, you spin. He goes, no, you do it. I said, why don't we do it together? So we sp- spun around like a bunch of idiots... <laughs> And I was like, wait, I think it's almost about to happen. And I was like, ah! And he freaked out. And I said, you know, th- this is something, this is, it's, a great, it's, a, it's a great example right here. It's a great example of what's going on. It's that when we are children, we are tossed to and fro, we, we just tend to believe these things. We don't know who to believe. We don't know what to believe. We don't have our bearings about us. And so we have to have this kind of diversity, particularly in leadership, to equip the body of Christ so that we aren't that anymore. Okay? The easiest person to just go back and forth on the pendulum of theology and spiritual maturity is the newer believer because they just don't know. They don't know how to read the Bible. They don't know how, who to trust about how to read the Bible. They, they, they are just in need of help. That's what Paul says this is for. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That is to Christ, who is head of the church, he'll say in the next chapter. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maturity project here because of unity, but also because of diversity. Finally, let's look over at Ephesians chapter 5. That What I want to focus on is in 22 through 30. But really what I want to focus on is verse 29 but let's get to it by getting our context he's moving to speak of people submitting in the body of Christ to one another as God has ordained okay that is why verse 21 says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ doesn't mean that every single person submits to every single person in the same way it means that everyone submits to one another the way God has ordained that they submit to one another all right And so in verse 22, we read wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body. So we get the body language and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands get much a much larger charge here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So it's going to tell us the nature of that love. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, let me just be very clear, just time out, because I know you know this is a passage where you would usually you know, make, say a ton of things about. Husbands are not Jesus Christ to their wife, alright? You you're not dying for your wife. When it says lay your wife down for your wife, it's not... I've heard so many people try to almost take this like I'm Christing my wife approach to this. What happens is Christ laid down His life for the bride. And then Paul gives a purpose statement for why Christ did that. It's not suggesting that your life is going to cleanse your wife from sin or anything like that okay i just want to be very clear or that your or that your efforts are going to be the ones that get or that result in her being without spot or wrinkle that she could be holy and without blemish i'm telling you that's just not going to happen if you're a, a husband all right it's not going to happen any more than it's going to happen in your own life okay that's what christ did he says christ did this he gave himself up For her, why would a Christ do that? Well, it's to accomplish this gospel, to accomplish this forgiveness of sins. Now, in the same way, having made that part clear, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And notice it doesn't say anything about, um, you know, atoning for your wife's sins or anything like that. It's talking about self sacrifice, it's talking about laying your life down for your bride. And in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, love himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so Paul says, you know how you take care of your own body? He presupposes some kind of self-care that you're interested in your own body, not suffering harm and being healthy and all the rest. He says, you know, how, uh, you know how you're Interested in your own body? See, that's how you're supposed to love your wife. You're supposed to be interested in her as well and and wanting to take care of her, wanting to lay down your life for her. Because, uh, here we are, for no one ever hated his own flesh, again, presuming that people, no, I, I like my body taking care of it, I value it. But he nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Because we are members of His body. We want to nourish our wives here, Paul says. But it's a picture of what Christ does for the church. Because we are members of Christ's body. And all of this in Christ language is why this is relevant to a union with Christ. Because individual union with Christ, my first point here, implies corporate union with Christ. Okay? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound because there, one flesh, there is this union that happens between a husband and wife. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There is this mystical union between the Christ and the church that Paul doesn't even care to try to explain any further. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so I hope that that is enough to establish this first primary point here. That individual union with Christ implies corporate union with Christ. Because when you have a bunch of people who are united to Christ, it... um, A corporate union with Christ supervenes on the bunch of individuals uh, that are united with Christ. And I can say something, I can say things about the universal body of Christ and its diversity that I might not be able to say about a particular church's diversity. Okay? So let's just, let me just, I want to talk now, I want to discuss, i got about 20 minutes to discuss some of the pastoral implications of corporate unity with Christ in light of union with Christ. And I don't have... I don't have time to address every question that could come up, but I'm going to ask a few of my my own, so I'm just not um, talking the whole time. But let me make a couple of points here. The first is that union with Christ is the strongest tie Christians have to one another. Sometimes it is just about the only tie. Okay? Sometimes it's just about the only tie, and there are two things that follow from that. One is that there are many people in every local church who have almost nothing in common except Christ. Folks, this is just the truth. This is the reality of it. There are a lot of people in our church who if you met them in any other context, okay, you would not have a relationship with them. You don't have a ton of shared interests. And now some of you do. That's and that's fantastic. Big thumbs up. But a lot of you don't. Okay? A lot of you don't have a bunch of shared interests. You don't watch the same TV shows. You don't read the same books. Barely anyone in here likes sports. All right. So I'm alone. No, I'm kidding. Of course I'm not. I'm just sad very sad i don't have a game to watch tomorrow Um, and so my point is that union with christ binds people together who otherwise quite frankly might not have anything to do with each other okay that's just the reality of it and no one should shy away from that like oh yeah we really gel because we're united to christ like well Union with Christ knits you together, but that doesn't mean that you're going to have hardly anything else in common. Okay? We are on the same team in the strongest sense of the word, despite the fact that a lot of us don't have a ton in common. Backgrounds, interests, personalities, etc. That's the first thing that follows. Second thing that follows is this. If union with Christ is the strongest bond that believers have, is as, as a result of our mutual union with Christ, we shouldn't be willing to break Christian fellowship with those united to Christ, even if we believe them to be in error or just because we don't like them. Now, we're going to learn today in the sermon, and, and you can probably guess, that there are certain kinds of errors that would disqualify someone from being Christian. We're going to talk about that. But not all. In fact, most errors, I would say, in the broader evangelical church, are not errors of someone not being a Christian you might consider it while it watered down it might be an eye roller for you or people in your local church you just might not like them you just you 're not a fan, maybe they rub you the wrong way they 're a little too much like this, or maybe they're too um, extroverted or they 're just too magoo i don 't know you just for whatever reason you don't care for them um But the thing is, if we are united, one of the things that I have learned personally as a pastor and, of course, as a Christian um, is what a blessing it is to be around people who I generally would not gravitate towards at all and intentionally spend time around them. Maybe they rub me the wrong way. Maybe they're not the easiest person to be around, but as I've done it more and more and more, I've experienced profound gro- personal growth. But also that hey, you can learn a lot from people, even if they even if they rub you the wrong way. You really, really can if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to listen. And um, and and then what you will find here's the and here's the here's like the best part after you have been around that person who rubs you the wrong way for long enough, they'll start to not rub you the wrong way because you'll start to know them better. Seriously. So why don't you give it a chance, okay? Give it a chance. You're united with Christ. And so if we're united with Christ in a robust way, just because we don't like someone or just because we don't like their politics or just because we don't like their, the fact that they're, you know, they hold this theological position... Um, that should not be a reason to break fellowship uh, with them. It really just shouldn't. However, there one, one very crucial qualifier. This is not to be confused with suggesting that those with significant yet still non-essential differences will be able to do every kind of ministry together. It's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. How much do I want to say about this one? Mere Christianity. People who are, I would say, on the same team. Is great for... You know what? That's actually one of my questions, so I'm not going to say something. This is what I am saying. This is to say that believers should seek to love and support those with whom they will spend eternity over those with whom they will not despite how kind or giving those people might be. What I'm saying here is that because of union with Christ, the disposition of believers should be to seek love and support those with whom they will spend eternity, and by the way, they're not mutually exclusive, but I'm saying when they are, over those whom they will not, despite how kind or giving such people may be. So that person who uh, theologically is a God-hater next door, um, you should not have a disposition towards them that is altogether more favorable than the gruff Christian who lives on the other side of your house. And that's all too easy to do as people uh, because, well, because we're people. That's all, it's all too easy to do. The incorrect conclusion is that mere Christianity, simply being a Christian, should be the only practical prerequisite for locking arms and doing ministry together. Okay? That sounds great in the air. That sounds great. Like initially, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the same team. Mere Christianity. But it doesn't work in reality. And for good reason. Why not, do you think? Why do you think? Some of you have surely been in these situations yourselves. Why is mere Christianity not going to do it in many but not all ministry efforts together? Why do you have to have a little bit more of that? Yeah. Okay, certainly. So if we're doing certain kinds of ministry, we need to have certain kinds of folks, certain kinds of personnel, certain kind of giftedness. Yeah, great example. What's another example? Does no one know any examples or does no one want to say anything? I know you all stories. I know you've been in churches with examples. Oh. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that's exactly right. A great great answer. So many church practices and traditions and strategies and ministry philosophies are going to end up being mutually exclusive. So we can all stand in the room as mere Christians, but when we all get to go deciding how we're going to go do X, Y, and Z and how we're going to accomplish these things, all of a sudden you're going to have suggestions that are mutually exclusive. You just can't do them all. You can't do them all. And some people are going to say, because I believe that this about the human condition of the the, 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 the human condition and sin, I think this is how we're going to go do evangelism. And someone says, well, I think this is actually the condition of the human heart. So this is perhaps the better. OK. And so when you start to go do something and you start to make a plan and you start to reach out, then all of a sudden you've got to have some details. You've got to have some specifics. you got to start Whenever you start to become about something in any way that takes a shape past just being a Christian, you are going to necessarily rule ideas out and by extension people who hold to those ideas. Someone raise their hand over here. Yes, James. For the yes, we are assuming that everyone is in agreement for the sake of this example. Yeah. Or everyone is a mere is a Christian. Yeah. Any other any other ways why you might think that it's not... Uh, you got to have a little bit more than this to do ministry together. Well, I don't want to belabor uh, the point here because our time is slipping away from us. I thought I was going to finish this today. It looks like I'm not. That's okay, though. This is good stuff. It's good to think about these things. Let me mention two other things. The other thing is discipleship is thick. Discipleship is a thick term. You know, mere Christianity, every uh, understood as something like someone 's gospel paraphrase and endorsement uh, i 'm a Christian. I have in fact repented and believed the gospel you know fair enough but but once you go into that a little further, once you go into that a little further um, you're going to find that listen, there is a bunch of disagreement and there are multiple traditions and multiple Understandings of everything from how to pursue God in the Word and what's the way to do this to you know how sovereign is God or what's the uh, what is the view of the Bible that I should hold, or what about the clarity of scripture in other words, mere Christianity as far as we're on the same team is fine but but in order to really disciple someone so that they can grow up into maturity, you have to bring in. Uh, you have to go deeper into the gospel, into what is some kind, I mean, the gospel is rich theology, but kind of what more people would consider theology and, and training and discipleship and what a prayer life should look like. And at every step along the way, you're going to have people who, I would say, disagree about those things. And so if I've got one guy, say I've got two guys in a discipleship group who are a mature believer and one who is not, and they both have different ideas about what it means to spend time in the Word and what it means to pray and how to do it and all the rest of the things, it's going to be very, very challenging to get uh, that young uh, person discipled. The third thing I bring up is that leadership teams. Leadership teams need to have a unified message to lead consistently. Now, you don't want to have every single person be the exact same kind of person on a leadership team, but at the end of the day, you want your leaders to be saying the same thing, if they're leading the, uh, and that's not even, that's just a, a principle even for, for the corporate world, but certainly in the church, that a leadership team needs to be diverse. Now, I understand that there are some Reformed Baptist churches um, who have, for example, some of our dear, dear Presbyterian uh, brothers as elders on their team. In fact, I know one who is about to become an elder. Folks, for me, that's just challenging to understand how that works, because it seems to me if you go to your pastor and ask what is the church, what is baptism, what is the nature of the new covenant, and all your pastor and your pastors have different answers. At the level of leadership, that just seems to be confusing. Should we baptize our infant child? One pastor says yes, one pastor says no. What do you do? Well, if you're some churches in the area, you just practice both. I think that's very odd. I think that's very odd. Okay? I'm not, not naming names, not naming churches, but it seems to me that that is an odd way to do it. Diversity within the body yes, we accept Presbyterians into membership, just not into eldership. Okay? You're going to hear Reformed Baptistic teaching uh, at our church. Okay, the second is the body of Christ is, I've got five minutes to do this part, there's no way this will happen. The body of Christ is objectively, in bold, characterized by diversity. Objectively characterized. You cannot do anything to make the body of Christ more diverse. Period. It is diverse. It is diverse. Remember 12.13, kind of we already covered it let me just go back there real quick just like a summary statement here 1 Corinthians 12.13 For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit I'm going to hop over, you don't have to hop over there with me to Galatians 3.28 and 29 For just as you have uh, excuse me well, I'll go to 27. For as many of you have, were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor is there slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Now, an irresponsible and very superficial reading of that makes it sound like all of a sudden those kinds of people don't exist anymore. OK, but a second, more careful reading of that. Actually says no, to make sense of what he's saying here, he obviously is assuming that these distinctions exist in reality, but he's saying something about the dignity and worth and status of those who are in Christ. He's, saying, he's not saying that because Christ has come, because you've been baptized, you, you, did, you became not a Greek. He didn't say who slaves who got baptized aren't slaves, that free people who got baptized aren't free anymore. He didn't say that if you get baptized, you become not a male. He's saying, yeah, you know these distinctions that are in the world? These distinctions don't separate us with regard to the fact that we are in Christ. You don't have a lower or higher standing. You don't have more or less dignity, okay? And you don't really, in one sense, have more or less opportunity, so the body of Christ is objectively characterized by diversity. Furthermore, physical bodies, which is the analogy Paul uses as an analog to the church, are diverse by default. They have their hands, they have their eyes, they have their uh, teeth and feet. For just as is one body just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Okay? So, that is setting the stage for this. I love to make these kind of points and then run out the door right here. 945. There is no New Testament expectation, however, that local instances of the body of Christ churches are to be particularly diverse beyond the diversity that the New Testament itself says characterizes the body of Christ. Both sexes is a normative expectation, both single and married, people of different ages, weaker and stronger believers, people with different giftings, and multiple socioeconomic classes represented. That's a lot of diversity, okay? That is diversity that the New Testament expects is going to be in churches, okay, okay? And, and I would say this as a normative expectation. So what that means is, um, it would be odd if you went to a church that was just all men. Very bizarre, out of step with New Testament. Or all women. Or as a church of all single people. Or it was a church with zero single people whatsoever. Okay, which is probably the most common one, but still, you know, a normative expectation, if you go into a church, there's going to be people who are single. People of different ages. Weaker and stronger believers, people with different giftings, social, different socioeconomic statuses, different incomes. We can expect to see diversity in the body of Christ because it is ordered. And in, 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 in when I say body of Christ, I mean local. Local churches. Like our local church has all of these things. Okay? However, we should, because of the objectivity... Of the diversity within the body of Christ combined with the kind of diversity expected within individual local churches, in the vast majority of cases, it is generally misguided to seek to artificially diversify local churches. Artificially diversify. Insofar as churches are healthy and normal representations of the body of Christ, they will already be diverse in the manner expected by the New Testament. Now, obviously, when we talk about this now, all of the considerations of uh, of race tend to come up. Okay? Um, and there are a lot of good questions that we are going to ask next time about that. Okay? We don't have a particularly racially diverse church. And neither does the massive Baptist church down the road. Okay? So, when we come back next time, what I want to ask is this. What are we to think about that? Should churches, in light of the fact that we have union with Christ and united to Christ, should churches represent, should they have equal representation of the population around them, or is that not how it works in the 21st century? I want you to think about that, and then we're going to come back and talk about it next week. Okay? Let's pray. God, we are thankful for unity and diversity within the body of Christ. We are thankful that you have called people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity out of darkness. That there is no group or kind of person left unaccounted for in the body of Christ. Even if we cannot find every single kind of person within every local church, every local instance of the body of Christ. And so as we consider these things and come back next week to continue our discussion, we pray that you would give us wisdom. And Lord, we pray you would prepare our hearts to witness the glorious baptism that's about to happen in our next hour. Be with us in the name of Jesus, please. Amen.